Oh, thank you, Beth. One quick note. Finally. Sorry. Go yeah. Ahead. I just, just... Oh, I was just gonna... Go ahead, Sienna. I was just saying thank you, Beth, for uh, covering that episode for us. That was fun. Yeah, thank, thank you, Beth. Thank you for doing it for us, Alyssa. Uh, Sienna. Is who <laughs> thank you to both Sienna. of you for making such a great first season. <laughs> podcast not yet a doctor uh today we're recording we're doing a kind of special review episode of our first season and kind of talking about some of our favorite moments some of our favorite clips and bonus we're also going to be answering some listeners questions that we've gathered over the past few weeks yeah so it's super exciting and i think uh yeah we're grateful for all of you guys listening this whole time and we're just gonna jump right in to get started so who who are you oh (laughs) never met you before my name is sienna i am the neuroscientist slash biologist host of this podcast and i'm doing a phd at mcgill university uh my name is beth and i am the resident physicist on the podcast i'm doing my phd in particle physics at sapienza university of rome and my name is Alistair, and I am the compulsory chemist of this podcast, and I am doing my PhD at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. I like the illustration. May I take a moment before we start? Absolutely. Because I would like to say to our listeners that we've got one more episode planned after this uh, to round off season two, and then I am unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your opinion... <laughs> I'm gonna leave the podcast to the other two, and they're gonna take it forward without me. And we're gonna miss you so much. <laughs> I'll miss, yeah. I'll miss you guys too. And um, I, I think we're gonna talk about it a bit more at the end of the next episode, the end of the, uh, season two review episode. But just to let you guys know. Yeah, we're gonna miss you. I'll miss you too. All right, so let's jump into our favorite episode clips. <laughs> <laughs> but not that much. <laughs> like with the sad news out of the way. Well, on that note, we were we were all picking our favorite episodes from season one, and my favorite episode was the Neutrinos episode by you, Beth. So this is going to be a little trip down memory lane for for us uh, with you. I'm so excited. Is there an ice cream shop at the end? Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of ice cream stops at the at this memory yes. lane. My favorite moment from the Neutrinos episode is the analogy that we landed upon for the different flavors of neutrinos. I thought it, it worked really well, and it was really, really good. And so I have uh, an initial clip on that that I'm going to play now. So yeah, like, Sienna's exactly right that... In fact, you're both exactly right. The flavor is is um, exactly the right technical term for it. And flavor just means type, like... Electrons, muons, and tau's are different flavors of charged leptons. And so, say you had a box of frozen muons, electrons, and tau's. This would be yeah Neapolitan particle physics. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> what is what is a Neapolitan like ice a cream? Scoop a lepton. <gasps> you don't know what Neapolitan ice cream is? Like, I feel like I should. It's strawberry, vanilla, and chocolate Ooh. in one Ooh. box. That sounds really good. Yeah, it is. So that is the uh, first clip. 
<laughs> I can hear how satisfied I am as I'm setting up that joke. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I really took my time with it. It's so funny. The great thing is that that was just really the beginning. Like, if you have followed Not Yet a Doctor <laughs> since then, or if you go back and listen to it again, you will find numerous other references since then to ice cream, usually brought up by the same Sienna Drake who brought it up in the first place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a bit of an obsession. Yeah, it's yep. so emblematic of our friendship, too, because we just really like food, all three of us. And um, yeah, yeah we, we've done a lot of cooking dinners together and, like, I don't know, yeah. going for ice cream and, you know, it's... For sure, yeah. like, we'll get to it in the question and answer section, but for sure a lot of our friendship has always been based around food. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And, and occasionally drink, yeah. but... Um, and I was surprised that, uh, Beth, you'd never heard of Neapolitan ice cream. Is it a North American thing? I have heard of it. No, it's Italian, I thought. Neapolitan. Oh, yeah, I guess he was... Neapolitano. Yeah. I thought. Um, but maybe it was like an Italian name for an American invention. There's a possible. possible. I'm willing to believe that. I don't know. Like, I have heard of it before. And I'm not sure if it's... Spe- I don't think it's specific to North America. Like, I think we have it in the UK. Mm. But I just couldn't remember what the three different types of flavors that went into it. Right. Okay, I have Googled this because I was... Okay, uh, yeah, I'm interested. Too interested. Okay, so Spumoni, which is Italian ice cream from... Spuma or foam, apparently. Okay. It's a molded gelato with the layers of different colors and flavors. Oh. So it looks a lot like what Neapolitan ice cream is. Typically, it's three different flavors with a fruit nut layer between them. Spumoni was introduced to the United States in the 1870s as Neapolitan style ice cream. Hmm. And th- I'm reading straight from Wikipedia here now. So, okay. ref Wikipedia, <laughs> but um, the number of the colors were chosen to resemble the Italian flag. Oh, yeah, I think the pink kind of does look like the green. Uh, <laughs> or the brown? I don't know. Yeah, like, like I, I was like, what? Like, which Italian flag? Not one that I recognize, but okay. So anyways, it's a, like, All right. I guess an American take version of Spumoni, okay. which is an Italian. Okay, All right, sure. Interesting. I've never been to Naples, so um, wouldn't know yeah. about Neapolitan ice cream. Well, I have to say, though, this mm-hmm. analogy of the Neapolitan neutrino flavors came in really handy in the episode. Because if you remember, yeah. this, and it was a fantastic episode about, like, neutrinos and their discovery and, like, the discoveries along the way. And we'll get to an interesting one in a minute. But uh, it came in really handy right at the end um, with this clip. Like, let's say you come to Rome, which I really hope you will. And I take you around Rome, and then you're getting back on the plane, and I'm like, here's some chocolate ice cream for your journey. You don't expect that by the time you touch down in Canada, this chocolate ice cream has suddenly turned into strawberry ice cream. Like, you expect it to probably be in your stomach by this point, but like... Knowing how fast I last with ice cream, yeah, it's true. (laughs) But it's not going to just randomly change into something completely different along the way it's not going to change its flavor exactly and this is what neutrinos do yeah and this is like this is incredible stuff weird eh Mm -hmm. isn't physics weird Mm -hmm. really interesting yeah but why do they change their flavor because they can (laughs) why can why can they nobody knows (laughs) that's a very good explanation (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like essentially that's like 
what quantum mechanics is. Like, why does this happen in quantum mechanics? Because it does. Because it can. But why can it? Well, we don't know. Right. No, we don't know. Why can it? Because we want to preserve mm. it. That's quite a good reason for canning things. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can it? <laughs> oh, that's a good pun. That was good. Um, and so I have one one final favorite moment that wasn't along the ice cream flavors. We did talk about it a little bit more in that episode. So go check it out. Uh, season one, episode neutrinos. Episode three. <laughs> season one, episode three. Go check out the neutrinos Just episode. Scrolling through one, two neutrinos, four. <laughs> <laughs> how epsilon um but i really thought that we had a lot of fun hearing about how i think it was the first discovery of neutrinos uh was done and so i'm gonna play that clip for you now so what they did was they got a hundred thousand gallons of tetrachloroethylene that sounds dangerous <laughs> Yeah, it probably is. Ah, oh, physicists. So they, what they did, again, physicists, they take a huge, great big mine in South Dakota, um, <laughs> which luckily is not being used anymore, and they just fill it. They just fill it to the brim with 100,000 gallons of oh my God. cleaning fluid. The environmental scientists must have been so sad. Yeah, the EPA is like over in the corner just crying and they're just like, Shh, we're doing science, we're doing physics. And the EPA is like, but the fish. The soil. What about the fish? The soil. I mean, no, I oh. don't think they didn't like, I, I will add a disclaimer. I don't think they literally just filled the mine. Like they had a container. Okay. I just pictured them like dumping it down a mine shaft and being like, well, let's measure neutrinos now. <laughs> <laughs> humans right mm. yeah I, I didn't actually go and look it up afterwards um, but i think we went on to talk about that it was actually in a container yeah i'm pretty sure yeah. but still <laughs> yeah i probably didn't explain that in the best way but um <laughs> no i thought it was fantastic i thought it was funny it, just... it led to some banter exactly picture them dumping a whole bunch of tetrachloroethylene yeah. down the mine it's like a hose um, yeah and listening to that yeah. clip i thought it was interesting because as i've gone further in my research and like starting to well writing my thesis and stuff, I've really thought more about soil contamination and, like, contamination from these mm. these kinds of things. And, like, that, that just seems like a huge potential contamination Yeah. Um, if it wasn't properly yeah. contained, which I'm sure it was because, mm -hmm. you know, this wasn't done in the yeah. 60s. Or was it? <laughs> I think it was, actually. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Again, you don't want, I mean, even from the physicist's perspective, you don't want your target material to be just leaking away. Like, you don't want to have to mm -hmm. keep pumping more and more Yeah, in, and you don't so. want it to be contaminated. Because the thing, too, was that they were detecting... You don't want it to be reacting with the dirt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, as I remember it, we go on to say, or you go on to say, Beth, that they were detecting neutrinos yeah. with their interaction with the tetrachloroethylene, causing it to turn into argon. And then they were measuring the amount of argon in the liquid. Mm -hmm. um, yeah which I thought was really cool because I do stuff with Argon too. But that's a different episode, a different story for another time. <laughs> so anyway, that was my mm -hmm. favorite episode from season one. Great job, Beth. Fantastic neutrinos explanation. Yeah, I loved that episode. That was such a good one. Such a great introduction to physics, honestly. Mm -hmm. And I... particle physics specifically. I obviously really enjoyed it. And I think like it's 
I don't know. I think it's a really fun introduction to the weird and wonderful world of quantum mechanics about all these things that you never think could possibly po- be possible, and then they happen, and you're like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. So, moving on to another episode. Yeah, one of my favorite episodes from season one was Alistair's episode about plasmas. Uh, because we covered a lot of really cool mm, I love that episode. stuff about plasmas and where they are and what they're doing. So I have a few clips to share. The first clip I wanted to share is just about the origin of plasmas. Um, so it comes from, as most uh, words in science do, with the ancient Greek plasma. Mm. meaning moldable substance, which I think is interesting because if we're thinking of it like this kind of sea of electrons mm. with the nuclei floating in it, it's moldable and, and formable. It's a gas that's been ionized, but is neutral. So it, it has these charged species in it, but overall, in the greater like bulk, it is neutral. I wanted to share this clip not only because it's cool to know where words come from, but because that's so often one of our struggles on this podcast is talking about linguistics. (laughs) So I felt like Alistair did a really good job there making sure we knew where the word came from and what it meant, because we don't normally know that, um, and we do have some pretty wild guesses when it comes down to that. (laughs) That's true. That's true. We, we really do need to get a linguist to, you know, phone yeah. in on occasion, be on speed Some dial. of our deepest rabbit holes have been into the meanings of words mm-hmm. and deliberately misinterpreting them as well. Yes. And something that was also and... fun about this episode, like, related to the quote as well, but also related to how it just evolved, is, like, you covered a lot of the history. It flowed so nicely, especially in the introduction of, like, mm. understanding who discovered them, why they were called what, where they came from. And so mm-hmm. I have a fun quote also from this episode about then the naming of plasmas plasmas by their uh, discoverer. This is Langmuir's words written to nature by Mott Smith, pulled from the <laughs> internet by me. In my word, in, in coming out of my voice. So we struggled to find a name for it. For all members of the team realized that the credit for a discovery goes not to the man who makes it, but to the man who names it. Witness the name of our continent. He was talking about the U.S. We toss around the names like uniform discharge, homogeneous discharge, equilibrium discharge, and for the dark or light regions surrounding electrodes, names like auras, halos, and so forth. But one day, Langmuir came in triumphantly and said he had it. He pointed out that the equilibrium part of the discharge acted as a sort of substratum carrying particles of special kinds, like high-velocity electrons from thermoionic filaments, molecules, and ions of gas impurities. This reminds him of the way blood plasma carries around red and white corpuscules and germs. So he proposed to call our uniform discharge a plasma. Of course, we all agreed, but then we were in for it. For a long time, we were pestered by requests from medical journals for reprints of our articles. This happens to me to this day. The scientific world of physics and chemistry looked askance at this uncouth word, and and were slow to accept it in their vocabulary. The engineering world treated it as a General Electric trade name, because at the time they were working for General Electric. Then, all of a sudden, long after I had left the laboratory, to my pleasant surprise, everybody started to talk about plasmas. This happened not long before they became thermonuclear, and so government subsidized. That finally put the seal of respectability on plasmas. (laughs) (laughs) That's really cool! I 
I completely forgot about all of that. Yeah, it's, I forgot about that little tidbit. It's such a fun, cute quote. Yeah, yeah. 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 So fun. I, I, I remember coming across that quote and wanting to, like, keep it in in full because I thought it was neat how we talked about, you know, the person that names something is ends mm. up being mm-hmm. known for the discovery. Mm-hmm. But I think also in, in later episodes in our first season, we talked a lot about the naming of things. Maybe this was more season two, but, like, talking about how plasmas are a medical thing and a physics thing mm-hmm. we in season two i guess it's season two but <laughs> we talk a lot about how things are named inconsistently between the disciplines mm-hmm. um, yeah which is really interesting that like like we've talked about it with nucleus is like the obvious example but also with uh, like dark chemistry and dark matter yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely actually that was uh, that didn't come to my mind but that's an even better example they like dark chemistry and dark matter and dark energy all mean three completely different things yeah yeah totally. which gets really cool like if you don't know if you haven't studied any one of these things like especially all three of these things you would have no idea Mm -hmm. it's true so but it's really interesting that like in this case plasma was used to mean exactly the same thing it was meant to be like an analogy to blood plasma yeah it's just chemistry blood yeah, yeah, I thought it was funny <laughs> that the, the medical plasma kind of came first before the actual physical, physics plasma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it makes sense. I think, like, there's been a lot of medical research into the blood probably before electric yeah. discharge. Yeah, I think it normally yeah. takes longer to discover things outside the body than inside the body. I have another clip that I also thought was just fun and a reminder because, like, this episode was so interesting talking about this fourth state of matter and I think, like, one of the best parts was just, like, really talking about the surprising and also not necessarily surprising ways that make it really important to us and life on Earth, even if people don't necessarily think about it all the time. This research branched into kind of five different interesting tangents that we're going to talk about. Uh, but the first thing is that once they started to study plasmas, they realized that plasmas are actually the most common state of matter and make up 99% of the matter in the visible universe. Can you think of why this might be? Because the sun is so goddamn big. <laughs> yes! Is so... It's thick! <laughs> she we see, we're lit up by plasma every day. You are 100% correct, Sienna. The sun is a plasma, and... Therefore, every star in the sky is a plasma. I don't know. I thought that part was really cute. And I also just... I love um, it. I love it. Yeah. There's so much plasma all around us, all throughout the sky, which also gets me into my next favorite part of talking about where plasmas are. What I So what I'm talking about right now, saying that plasmas make up 99% of the matter in the universe is something called the warm hot intergalactic medium like there's all sorts of mediums we use to grow cells <laughs> and i can picture somebody <laughs> using that one like oh yeah i'm just incubating my humans on their little planet in the warm hot intergalactic medium for a few million years but this is really interesting because um when i was looking at the warm hot intergalactic medium which actually burns at 10 to the 5 to 10 to the 7 kelvin 
and, and it, it burns so hot that it emits x-rays. So we can't see them with our eyes, but we can see them with telescopes. This is the space in between our galaxies. And when you look at a, a computer rendering of, you know, our galaxies and the warm, hot intergalactic medium between them, it looks Ooh. kind of like neurons. It's like the galaxies are the little nodules, and then there's these strands of warm, hot intergalactic medium between them. I was almost going to go down this tangent about how maybe we're living in a giant cell culture, but I thought that was a little bit too, like... <laughs> I believe it. Tinfoil hat, like, wavy. But but you mentioned that, and that's that's something that I think is really an interesting thought, is that we're just living on a cell culture for some, like, larger being. It's experiment. This is very <laughs> Douglas Adams. This is very Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I got I have to say that that's the last time I do research for an episode while high. It, I just <laughs> it went down so much of a tent. No. <laughs> I love that. I'm I love, kidding. I I'm love kidding. that clip so much. I love it for two reasons. Like I think there are two really interesting themes in that. And one is physicists naming things badly. <laughs> which we've come back to a lot of times. <laughs> and the second one is um Alistair thinking that we're all living in a simulation. Which we're going to come to when we get to my chosen clip as well. I'm not that conspiratorial, guys. I just think it's an interesting thought experiment. Can we're I... not living in a simulation. My favorite things about this clip, and especially like having gone and looked at pictures of the whims afterwards, the warm, hot intergalactic medium, is how fucking cool it is. Sorry for my swearing yeah. there. I rarely do that on this podcast, but it's <laughs> worth it in this moment. This is a bonus episode. This is a bonus episode, and this is the moment where I will express like how cool it was to learn about these strands of matter that are linking galaxies universes galaxies mm. we don't know any other universes yeah, like, don't don't be silly sienna not yet not yet, <laughs> not um, yet. <laughs> and my second my second favorite thing about this is where beth says that's very douglas adamsy because <laughs> we talk about hitchhiker's guide all the time on this yeah, podcast yeah. <laughs> and so that's it's just so like true. a preview of that is like douglas adams comes back a lot yeah, yeah. it's so true yeah and uh, it's i hard mean to talk about the universe and not talk about douglas adams i think totally that is totally. all i had prepared from the plasma episode there's one bit uh, the intro to that episode is also super funny because we're talking about the zombie apocalypse and welding um mm. so just a, again, a little tidbit of information to tempt you to go back go and listen check that to it out. again because it's a fun yeah. one. Yeah. yeah, that was a really good episode. Okay, um, on to our last uh, favorite episode from season one. Woo. And my favorite episode from season one was actually almost impossible to pick out, but the one that I chose was Place Cells from Sienna. Mm, Mostly episode. because, like, between I think my two favorite. Possibly my two favorite episodes completely from season one, but probably my f- two favorite Sienna episodes from season one were Olfaction and Play Cells. Mm-hmm. Mostly because I know nothing about biology. <laughs> and so, like, all these, like, really basic concepts in biology just completely blow my mind. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about cells and how much you can know about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree, cell biology so is cool. When I was this, <laughs> biology is really cool. Especially biology, biology is really cool. Yeah. Um, and it's so complex. That's the other thing. It's like uh, my supervisor and I have talked about this before, about how like we're glad that we did physics <laughs> because it's really simple compared <laughs> to biology. Um, but yeah, I think this... So this episode has... 
I think, probably a record for the number of times that I say, that's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, I might try and go through and like get a collection of something. <laughs> that's so weird. That's, um, so, weird. that's I, so weird. That's so yeah, weird. Like all of the time, like, yeah. that's so weird. That's so weird. That's so weird. <laughs> having, um, having edited that episode, Beth, I can attest to how many times you say that's so right? weird. Right, exactly. Yeah. But like, it is really <laughs> it's, weird, isn't it? Yeah. Biology um, is weird. So, it's, yeah, biology is weird. Um, science is weird. Mm-hmm. Science is... I don't know, anyway. There's so much in here that I did not know. And there's so much, like, brain-melting complexity to all of this stuff. Mm. Um, so, anyway, the first clip that I'm going to share is where we talked about maps in the brain. And we'd already talked about this a bit in Olfaction. So it wasn't completely new, but I think we gave a really good like explanation and introduction to it in this episode. So, And so there's other types of maps too. So a famous example of this is Penfield's homunculus, which again, how many people know that outside of neuroscience? I don't know. Do you guys have any guesses what this is? I have, I have heard of that, but okay. Beth, do you want to take a stab at it? No, I think I've heard <laughs> of it too. But I think I might have only heard of it from you, Sienna. Yeah, well, it's like, it's famous, but like, it's hard for neuroscientists to know how famous neuroscience things are outside of our little <laughs> weird neuroscience bubble, right? I get like, that. <laughs> so this is a good gauge for me. That's what we're here for. Okay, I'm going to take my stab at it. Yeah. Is Penfield's homunculus the area of the brain that is uh, susceptible to stroke? And it's the reason that you smell burnt toast when you have a stroke? No. Okay, never mind then. But that's a really interesting guess, and I don't actually have any idea what, <laughs> what that is. But <laughs> maybe it is also, who knows? Penfield's homunculus is this creature, kind of, a homunculus, really, that represents... Oh. <laughs> that represents... It's not an area of the brain. Um, kind of. It represents an area of the brain, and so... When I say this, if you go to the top of your top middle of your head, you'll hit the spot and then just go like if you went straight down and touched the cortex, so that outer layer of brain, right on top of your head. This is where like your motor neurons, so the neurons that control your body and movements, and your somatosensory neurons, so the neurons that feel things in your body. So like if something touches your hand, that's then sent to this area of the brain. So it's responsible for like your whole body, both sensing things and moving things. And he kind of mapped this through neurosurgery again, and you can put electrodes on people's brains when you're doing like open brain surgery and just send like a little zap. And then they would tell you where on their body they felt the zap, like where, where did that sensation come up? And so he created this map of where in our brain our body parts are located essentially and it's this really strange creature because it's not at all related to the size of our body parts right like our legs if and if you think about it that makes sense because like our legs don't have a lot of touch sensation associated with them and so it has much more to do with like how many neurons actually are in an area versus how big that area is physically I love how overly confident I was exactly what this was, and then was just so wrong, like just completely wrong. Because also, I've learned subsequently that we don't actually smell burnt toast when we have a stroke. That is a myth. 
Okay. It's not a thing. Is it? Yeah. Good to it know is, because I was yeah. about to Google that because I still don't know hmm. why you said what you said or what that <laughs> meant. <laughs> like, is there a part of the brain that's particularly susceptible to stroke that makes you smell burning toast? Like, no. No, I was thinking of the okay. hippocampus, I think, and then okay. just trying to spiral off that <laughs> to Fair something. Enough. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> anyway, I think, like, one of the reasons why I chose that episode, that clip, um, partly because we're, like, I was, like, trying to do a bit of a summary of the episode, is because, like, actually it really sets up the whole episode really well. The idea of, like, having certain regions of your brain that are associated with certain things... Mm-hmm. But, like, the, the size of the parts of your brain that are associated with with certain things doesn't necessarily correspond to the size of the actual things that are kind of controlling, if you see what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that was a really good introduction, that's what I was thinking. We may cut this out, but there was a, a segment that we discussed, and I think we ended up cutting out of the original episode, so here's some special bonus content for you <laughs> listeners that listen to everything. Um, we went on to talk about a really interesting factor oh, yeah. of this about how um originally the homunculus had very small genitalia mm-hmm. and then i mean this was all just oh, us yeah, theorizing yeah. but like um and then it was like realized that actually no there probably are a lot of nerve endings down there like why why was this originally so small and you know we were thinking that you know maybe people didn't want to report that they were feeling yeah yeah stimulation yeah. sensations down there when this research was being done so yeah, yeah. Uh, i thought Which that was really, a really yeah i thought it was an interesting yeah, yeah. tangent that we took that uh, we ended up cutting out just for time and kind of relevance and stuff but i thought that was a neat little discussion that we had yeah, yeah. Well, i think that actually um we've got a lot to get through so i should probably cut this short but i think that's a really interesting example of how like science and society overlap and how it's difficult to understand one without understanding the mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. it's such a perfect example of where you might think science is like if you just listen to that with no critical thinking or like no thoughts about how society is affected you'd be like oh yeah that makes total sense now we have a homunculus we know how bodies mm-hmm. are mapped but like the homunculus mm-hmm. is yeah, yeah, decidedly yeah. male yep, yep. that's how they've decided to represent it there's little to no information or attempts to map this in women and Classic. if mm. there was like women in the studies like you say like they probably weren't reporting on genital stimulation no breasts yeah. on the homunculus, so I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, really? Yeah, nipples are not sensitive. Damn. <laughs> no, not, like, and that is a fact straight from science, right? So like, don't believe everything you think, people, about science, because science has big blind spots too. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like our eyes. We'll get to yes. that in season two. <laughs> <laughs> Did you talk about that? Um, okay, so my next clip was introducing the idea of place cells mm. and um yeah in 1971 there is a research called o'keefe and he reported the existence of place cells and these were cells in the hippocampus as we talked about before so neurons in the hippocampus and their very special property that he discovered or showed was that they fire based on where the rat is in its environment So say that rat is in the top right corner of the Uh box. There is one cell that is firing like on and on and on as it's there in that spot. But when it moves somewhere else and as it's moving through those other like places, different cells are firing that will only fire in a certain region of space within that box. And these are called regions of space are called place fields because essentially they're 
fields of space where a neuron is going to fire. And it's not going to fire anywhere else. So, like, basically your brain has drawn a map in your brain. And then (laughs) when you're in certain points of the map, it's like a mini-map in a video game. Except it's in your brain, and different neurons are firing where you are. That is wild! Yeah, it is wild. Pretty cool, man. So yeah, and so where you guys are sitting right now no. in your room, no. there is a neuron responsible, <laughs> and its only job right now is to just fire because you're in its spot essentially Whoa. in the map. Oh my god! I still can't get over how cool play cells are. Like, yeah, I love this episode because it's such a good example of like the funnest part of neuroscience, which is the brain thinking about you and how mm. the brain is representing you, and it's just like. Right, yeah, we all have brains. Like, yeah, we're doing this mm-hmm. podcast and we're thinking about it, but while we're doing it, there's a region of our brain responsible for, hey, Sienna, you're in this spot of your room right now, and that's all I'm going to tell you. Like, this is my one job. I'm a neuron, and I know where you are, and I'm keeping track of that. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so yeah. creepy. Our brains are doing so much for us. Yeah, I think that's why I never became a neuroscientist is because there are so many times during this season and season two where, and it's usually in your episode, Sienna, where we start talking about the brain thinking about the brain and I just lose it. Like, it's, (laughs) hey, I can't, I don't want to know that I'm thinking about what I think and that I'm here and Mm -hmm. that's just too much thinking. Yeah, Alice's reaction sometimes is like quite extreme. (laughs) As Um, Beth would say, that's uh, so weird. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, isn't it so weird? Isn't it so weird? Well, this like um in this clip, Alistair brings up uh, something I'm kind of going to come back to in the end, which is like his idea that everything is related to video games and simulations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've got two more clips. This next clip is split into two. So in this clip, we talk about how inefficiently places are represented in our brain, because apparently one place is mapped to exactly one neuron in your brain which sounds just wild wildly inefficient of the monitored neurons when a rat is in the top right hand corner only they've only found one firing yeah as far as i'm aware yeah yeah because that was the question like like when we talk sorry well no like i was just gonna it was my question too like it would it would make sense if it was a pattern of neurons firing for that specific location because then a different yeah. pattern could be yeah. in a different location giving you yeah thousands billions of possible yeah. patterns like when we talked about olfaction and how you don't just smell like it's not just one sensor that smells one yeah odor, i'm pretty sure it's one cell one place field okay that's so weird mm-hmm. Um, but, then, but then that cell also fires in a different location for a different... Yeah, yeah. and if you have, like, a yeah. very large environment, then you can sometimes find, like, one cell with two place fields. Like, it might have two place fields in that environment, but there's not going to be any relationship between, the like, those two places mm-hmm. that's conserved. Right. So it might fire in, like, if you have a really large environment, it might fire in, like, the top right corner, but also then, like, slightly offset from the bottom left, and there's, like, no... If you find multiples of these cells, there's no correlation between where these two place fields will be. It's just it has to be a larger environment for it to bother, I guess, pretty much remapping right. and like also encoding another space. Part of what I found really interesting, because I've talked about this before, that one of my 
one of the things that I find so interesting in science is how, like, the process of science is done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that I really, really enjoyed about this episode was, like, hearing about all the experiments that people have done with rats and with humans mm-hmm. and, yeah, like, all these things. Yeah. This was a very experiment-heavy episode. Yeah. yeah. A lot of Which things, I love. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, and I taught me about something I'd never heard about before. Like, I'd never heard of what place cells were. So learning about yeah. them was super mind-bending. Yeah. I know. It's, it's mind-bending every time I hear it, too. I'm always just like, one cell, yeah. one yeah. cell is d- dedicated yeah. to, a pl- like, firing for a whole place field. Like, how does it know? Yeah. How does it know? It's so wild. Yeah. Yeah, how does it know? How do we know anything? We don't know. Oh. <laughs> Brains. Brains. It's like intrinsic properties oh, of brains is to create maps of stuff. That's like what the brain does. It's its intrinsic That's capacity. Wild. Unreal. That's really cool. Yeah. Okay, one last clip. Um, so this, this is where Alistair goes full on and is like, we're living in a simulation. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I'm, I'm speechless. I'm honestly so speechless. Yeah. I just had a weird thought about how like maybe we're all living in a simulation (laughs) because i was thinking about vr (laughs) bear with me here i was thinking about vr and how they've developed like a treadmill a two-dimensional treadmill so that because when you play a vr game like you can't really walk around in a full environment because you're limited by the space of the room that you're in playing the game Mm -hmm. but if you're Mm -hmm. on a treadmill of i don't Mm -hmm. know hexagonal square or hexagons that move around and repeat then you can walk ad infinitum so the fact that like your brain the grid cells maintain their firing mm-hmm. pattern even in the dark that's a weird connection that mm-hmm. even if you don't have the visual cue of your environment your brain is still you know i put this cell and then mm-hmm. this cell and you know one foot in front of the other and the pattern is still there that's so interesting yeah it's pretty yeah. pretty wild this is so weird. Honestly, this is such a good advert for like yeah. video games. I've been so stuck with rights for so long. Like I don't play video games. I don't have a strong interest in it. But like, honestly, all of this like it's gonna rot your brain and it's gonna turn you into thugs and like makes you violent and like, no, actually, it's just a really good way of yeah. understanding neuroscience. You should play more video games, Beth. They're a lot of fun. I should. Apparently, I should. Yeah. Yeah. That was so cool. Um, and then, like, talking afterwards, we talk about the VR study yeah. with people. Or maybe that was before, but anyways, where people also yeah, yeah, have to yeah. pick up objects in certain locations in a VR map. And then they have to, when they're asked to recall where they were in that map with that object, the place cell fires. So it's, like, the link to memory of place, mm-hmm. the link to all mm-hmm, sorts of things. It's, mm-hmm. yeah, wild. It's wild how specific neurons yeah, are. Yeah, and Alistair brings up Ikea in this episode as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely go check out this episode. Yeah. There's yeah, some really Yeah, it was great... a really top-tier episode. Very fun, yeah. Thank you to both of you for making such a great first season. Thank you to everybody, and thank you to our listeners as well. Thank you to the entire world for existing. Yeah. Well, most of the world. Okay, so we put out a call over all of our social media channels. If you're not following us on social media... Go check us out at at not yet a DR on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And you can send us an email at uh, phd32b at gmail.com. That's phd32b at gmail.com. So we put out a call for questions Mm -hmm. and we're going to answer some of those questions now. Yes. Shall I ask the questions and then we can all kind of go through the little answers? Yeah. 
If you want. Yeah. So Gavin asks, how did you all meet? Oscar's got his cute face on, like, it was me. I brought the group together. Yeah. <laughs> I brought us all together. <laughs> well, it's true, though, because we all met in Sweden on our semester slash year abroad. And Alistair and I met first because we were there in the from the autumn. And um, we played in the orchestra together, mm-hmm. right. which was great fun. And then it turned out we were both scientists and we lived close together. So we'd walk home after rehearsals and we'd chat and we got close to, close together. We went on holiday, which was great, mm-hmm. um, to Milan on like no notice at all. Yeah. <laughs> and then you guys met in the spring, right? In the, in the second term in a biochemistry course because yeah. biochemistry, the mm-hmm. overlap. Yeah. And I would feed yeah. Alistair answers to the professor's questions that they would ask because yeah. I knew quite a bit already <laughs> about biochemistry and Alistair wanted and to I have the nothing. right answer when he raised his hand. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think we actually met because I had just finished a course that I had made some good friends in, yeah. in chemistry and then nobody was in that biochemistry course. Mm-hmm. And so the first day of class, I was like, okay, all these new students, okay, sat by myself. Mm-hmm. And then at lunch in the cafeteria, I saw you guys, because you kind of knew people, Sienna. Yeah, I and so I went over and I was like, oh, you guys are in molecular biology too. Can I sit with you? And a friendship was born. Yeah, I graciously let him sit at my table. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and Sienna and I didn't meet for months. Yeah. We didn't meet till March because Alistair decided that he wanted to be friends with us separately. Well, he didn't yeah, I don't want, know what I was... Yeah, he was cheating on both of us at the time. He didn't want either of us to yeah, know yeah. about the other one. Yeah, yeah. I just didn't want um, you guys to become better friends and then run off and leave me <laughs> alone. And but yeah, we met and then gradually we started doing things all together yeah. and we became friends. Yeah, and, and then we started this podcast because quarantine. Yeah, <laughs> that's the story. Basically, that's it. That's the yeah. story. Next okay, question. Okay, next question. <laughs> the question comes from Andromeda, and they ask, "Why is the sky blue?" Beth. <laughs> Okay, um, let me pull up all my notes. So why is the sky blue? The answer is Raleigh scattering, or else Rayleigh scattering, depending mm-hmm. on how you pronounce the, the name of this old English guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the point is that the, the light from the sun is essentially white. Um, so it's made up of all the, all the visible wavelengths um, of light. But when it interacts with our atmosphere... Um, it scattered off the atoms and the, and the molecules in the atmosphere. Um, blue light is scattered more strongly. For the maths nerds among you, um, the uh, strength of the scattering goes like 1 over the wavelength to the fourth power. So the smaller the wavelength, the more likely it is to be scattered. And blue light has a shorter wavelength than red light. And that means that um, that blue light is scattered more strongly. And that means that it's look, it looks like it's coming from all the different regions of the sky, whereas the colours that aren't that don't get scattered as much, um, like yellow and red light, still look like they're coming directly from the sun. Can I ask a follow-up question? Yeah, go ahead. So ultraviolet light is obviously shorter than blue light even, so yeah. that would scatter even more, and is that why the atmosphere protects us from UV rays? Partly. Uh, that's a very good question. Probably. And if we yeah, could probably. see ultraviolet light, the sky would be purple. 
Yeah. Well, depending yes. on how I interpreted that. We'll get to that in season two. Probably, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I think this is all covered on the Wikipedia page, which I did I did read in preparation. But um, uh, if you want more information, go yeah. there. But yeah, I think, I think it probably uh, is part of the reason. I also don't know um, how much UV radiation is emitted by the sun. I don't know exactly what the sun spectrum is. Hmm. It, I know that it peaks in like greenish light. Um, so my two follow-up facts are about twilight and about cloudy days. Um, cloudy days are something that I'm an expert in, mm-hmm. having <laughs> been born and born up, brought up <laughs> in the UK. Twilight, I have seen a few nice sunsets over the uh, coast in okay. Rome. So at twilight, the, the sun is lower down on the horizon, meaning that it has to go through more atmosphere. The, the light from the sun has to go, travel through more atmosphere. And that means that more of the blue and green light just gets scattered away from us. Mm. And the red light gets scattered more towards our eyes. Mm. And that's why the, the sky appears red interesting cool yes very whereas under a cloudy sky what happens is the droplets of water in the clouds are so big compared to the wavelength of light that they scatter all of the different wavelengths of light almost uniformly so all of the wavelengths are just mixing in the sky and it appears white wow thank you i have a follow-up to your follow-up facts you know the expression, Go. red sky at morning, sailor's warning, red sky at night, yeah. sailor's delight? Yeah, we use it with shepherds, but... It actually has some scientific basis, because in the northern hemisphere, as the sun is rising in the morning, mm-hmm. it's rising in the east, and if there are yep. clouds coming in from the east, because of the way that the, I think it's the Coriolis effect, blows storms, um, red sky at morning, sailor's warning, there is a storm on the horizon coming towards you, mm. because in the east... It's coming towards oh, you in the northern hemisphere. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. The storm has passed. The sun is setting in the it's west. It's going away from you. And it's going away from you. So it actually has a little yeah. bit of scientific basis to it. Very cool. cool. That's clever. Okay, okay, next question yeah, let's get comes these. from Sainia. Saini, I don't I don't know how to pronounce this person's name. <laughs> sayonara. Uh, sayonara, I guess. Uh, and they say, what are you nerdy about apart from science? Um, shall I go first? Sure. Music, we've already mentioned. Mm-hmm orchestral music and also since starting to learn a second language a bit about linguistics and languages and foreign languages and that kind of thing i just think it's really cool yeah i just think it's really cool maybe you can be our resident linguist we can call you in <laughs> on occasion <laughs> i'm not that clever <laughs> sienna what about you i am nerdy about anime and video games those are my other mm. interests mainly i love it yeah. I love it yeah. too. And you're an amateur streamer, aren't you? <laughs> I am an amateur streamer. I stream video games Sunday nights for my friends. Um, yeah. I have a friend who's more of a pro streamer too. He streams on mm. Twitch, so you should go follow him. Yeah. Do you want his, to? Um, yeah, yeah. Out? His at is call him Spring yeah. Twitch. Go find him. Nice. Mm-hmm. I'm nerdy about music as well. I like choral music i sing well before the pandemic i sang in a few choirs and that's kind of all i do with my time <laughs> i'm nerdy about writing my thesis <laughs> all right, all right. yeah I'm, i literally i'm nerdy about writing my thesis. next question next question comes from arib who asks oh. how do magnets work well this is a great time to remind you to go follow arib slash call him spring on twitch um oh it is yeah, yeah same, guy, same, same person. guy cool 
Thank you for listening, Areeb, and thank you for the question. I'm not really sure whether I mean thank you for the question, <laughs> because <laughs> it's a really hard one. So basically, I tried to give an explanation of magnetism at the macro scale, so like magnets as we see them in our daily lives, in the last episode of season two, which like when I was listening back to it, I realised as a hand wavy idea works fine as far as repulsion is concerned but not so well as far as attraction is concerned because quantum mechanics is difficult but like i'm gonna give a classical explanation and then we'll underscore this with a little bit of beethoven (laughs) yeah okay um maybe a bit of mozart mozart probably actually either one really okay so in magnets in all atoms uh we have the nucleus and then we have electrons around the outside and uh, as we discussed in many an episode before um, electrons are they have intrinsic angular momentum which you can think of as spinning on their axis and this spin causes a magnetic field how it does it is beyond me but it does and if it's spinning one way, then its magnetic field is going in one direction. If it's spinning in the opposite direction, then its magnetic field is going in the other direction. And what happens in most materials is that the spins of these electrons are completely disaligned. They're just going in random directions all the way around, which means that all of their magnetic fields cancel each other out. Is that clear so far? Yeah, can we? Yeah. So can I just... Um, because you know how much I love yeah. to describe things in ways that make me think about better. Yeah, yeah. yeah so like, yeah. can we think of it as like a water wheel or like a motor? So it's spinning around and it has little arms that are curved in a specific direction. So it's pushing water in one direction more and creating like almost like a yeah like a vortex yeah. or something. And how exactly a particle with a charge does that, we don't know, yeah. but it is doing that. Yeah. I don't and know. And that can either pull things yes. in or push yeah. them out. I don't know how it does it. I think it is known how it's yeah. how it happens, but um Quantum mechanics. You have to be, yeah, exactly, quantum mechanics. Magic. So then what happens in ferromagnetic materials is that you can align all of the spins in in the material so they're all pointing in the same direction. I've got some nice diagrams here that I'll put on the, on the social media. Um, but if all the spins are pointing in the same direction, then all of the fields add up and you get a magnetic field out from the end. So that's mm-hmm. what happens in ferromagnetic materials. And then how magnetism works is... The classical limit of what I described in the in the last episode of the of the second season, um, which is the exchange of photons. So these force carrying particles, these particles of light that are exchanged, they, according to quantum mechanics, can go in any direction that they want to and do any uh, path that they want to. Um, but there will be some probability that they go in one direction and some probability that they go in a different direction. And for some reason that I don't know. When magnets repel each other, you get a lot of these photons that you can think of as like going directly from one to the other and pushing the magnets outwards like that. Can you kind of understand what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. Using a kind of conservation momentum idea. Like if you were on ice skates and you threw a tennis ball to your friend who was also on ice skates, then you'd both move backwards. Yeah, if you were both stationary to begin with. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Whereas for attraction, somehow the part the photons make their way all around the back and hit your friend on the head and uh, move you <laughs> move you towards each other. So you take a t- you're both standing on skates stationary. You throw a tennis ball behind you and it loops all the way around exactly. and smacks your friend in the back exactly. of the head, and you both end up <laughs> exactly. going together. 
Yeah. Yeah. Exactly how these things happen is uh, complicated and you would have to do the maths and integrate and blah, blah, blah. And it would be a lot of things that I don't know how to do. But that is my explanation of how magnets work and I hope that it has been clarifying and not confusing. <laughs> no, I think, I that, think that was, that good. was a good Thank explanation. You, yeah. <laughs> and thanks Areeb for the question. Magnets are Yeah, thanks Areeb for the question. Yeah. Difficult Our next question comes from Magnetar. Uh, so that's appropriate I guess. And they ask, do photons <laughs> produce light or does light produce photons? Again, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this one. I'm kidding. I'm gonna hand this one to Beth. <laughs> <laughs> no, Sian, I want to hear your explanation for this. I think I have guess. Yeah, yeah, go for it. I think photons are well, they're force carriers of light. Yeah. Whatever yeah. of the electromagnetic effect. I think photons produce light because photons can act as a particle or a wave, and presumably when they're acting as a wave slash their wave effect is what produces the light. Yeah, I think that was a really good explanation. So I would say that photons produce light because what we perceive as light is actually photons. Um, but when you switch on the light, uh, the thing that we, the object that we call a light, like a lamp, then what mm-hmm. is produced is photons. So um, oh. it depends how philosophical. So you do lights produce photons yeah. or does photon? <laughs> now we got to be careful about how we're defining light, right? Yeah. <laughs> But I think that's... Okay. Well, thank you, Magnetar, for the question. Yeah, thank you. I didn't actually mean to answer that one, but... But you did a good job anyway. Yeah. The next question comes from Gavin again. Uh, He asks, how do bees know which flower to hop to next? Smell? Color? Well, so for one, I have a simple answer, which is probably both. They seem to choose... They like both of those things about flowers. But I did find a paper published in 2021 in January called Different Effects of Reward Value and Saliency During Bumblebee Visual Search for Multiple Rewarding Targets. So this is where they're in a complex field with multiple targets that they could want to choose. So essentially they argue that there's sort of two major factors that can influence bee searching for flowers, which is the saliency. So that's the color contrast compared to the background. So this white flowers are bright colors for a reason. It's to attract bees. It makes them salient. Mm. The other thing that could attract them is the reward value. So certain flowers are going to have a higher or lower reward. And this could probably be determined based on both the bees' experience with different flowers and also maybe the smell of how much pollen there is there for them to collect or something. And so essentially they trained bees (laughs) to uh, recognize two different rewarding flower types in different experiments that differed in either saliency, reward value, or both. So they were able to like modulate these two things about the flowers. And what they found is that if like across equal reward flowers, bees preferred the more salient flower. So the flower that had higher contrast is where they're going to jump if the flowers are of equal reward. Mm. But if the flowers are of unequal reward, they're more likely to just go to the higher reward flower. So the one that they know mm-hmm. is going to produce more pollen. Interesting. That makes sense. Anyways, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We'll share that paper. Yeah. I'm sure there's. I'm just like yeah. I got that from the abstract and description. I'm sure there's a lot of interesting details about how they obtain and train bees. <laughs> you know, so bee bee studies are really yeah. funny and cool because training bees is such a funny <laughs> a funny thing in science. Yeah, like that's such a weird concept. Um, yeah. That's really one, cool. One quick thing I'll mention: you just mentioned that you got that from the abstract. I think a lot of people feel that science is inaccessible because there's a lot of paywalls in getting scientific information. 
but I found mm-hmm. that actually a lot of abstracts are free and available. And yeah. if you can if you can digest the technical jargon, which I think we try to do on this podcast, but you know maybe yeah. our listeners, after hearing some of mm-hmm. these concepts and terms, they are empowered to go look at some physics abstracts about neutrinos because they have the language. Yeah. And you know those are free and out there, and and they give a true yeah. A you just have to be careful about people overstating their results oh yeah totally but, totally yeah um, i'm not saying that abstracts um, you should only read the abstract but like that's usually yeah. the only thing that's accessible yeah i would also shout out a couple of other resources physics is mostly pretty good about publishing all their papers first on the archive which is a preprint server all of their papers on there are completely free to view for everybody nice um and if you can't find a paper for free somewhere then if you can find a Sci-Hub site that's working, which seems to be getting more and more difficult as time goes on, mm-hmm. but Sci-Hub in principle hosts pretty much every single paper in the, in the history of academia yeah. for free. Mm. Um, and as long as you can find a, a, one of their hosted sites that works, then you can type in the, the name or the mm, DOI or whatever to, to try and find your, pi- your paper. And, um, yeah. And the other thing you can do is always email the author. Yes. There's usually yeah, an email address associated with the paper for the cor- corresponding author. And you can send them an email and see if they'll just send you a copy of the paper, which most likely they will because they're allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. And they yeah. want people to read their paper. Yeah. yeah. As I know scientists and I know that they want to share their paper. The yeah. best day ever is when somebody is like, hey, I'd love to read your paper. And you're like, oh, my God, really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, my paper? work is making an impact. Yeah. Go make a scientist's day. Yeah, I'm sure you found that when we reached out for interviews, everyone that I reached out to was super excited yeah. to talk about yeah. their research. So yeah. um, thank you, Gavin, for that question. And yeah, thank um, you, Gavin. I think we have time for one final question. This one comes from Regina, and uh, she asks, how many times per week do you think about dropping out and living <laughs> in the wilderness? Uh. <laughs> I think she's referring specifically to when doing the PhD, not the podcast, uh, but... <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll start because I've been, you know, writing my thesis, getting to the end. And um, uh, every day, uh, every yeah. day I just think, wouldn't it be nice <laughs> to just live in the woods? <laughs> yeah, it's sort of an I, at least once a day thing. I want to, like, I want to give a different perspective, which mm-hmm. is never, honestly. Mm-hmm. I am really lucky that I honestly really love my job and I wouldn't change it for anything else. That's good. Yeah, like, I'm really, really lucky in that because I love the overarching, like, field and learning about it and thinking about it, studying it, but I also actually really like the day-to-day work that I do, so... That's awesome. Yeah, and I'm really lucky, but I, like, wanted to just say it because I think, like, importantly, there's a lot of discussion on social media and between PhD students about how hard a PhD is, and like I say, that is really important to recognize that and to talk about it but like there are some of us out there who actually really enjoy it as well and so it doesn't have to be just a complete torture yeah no totally well check back in when you're mm-hmm. writing your thesis and see if you feel the same way yeah <laughs> like in a year and a half's time i may have completely changed my mind but um well sienna do you want to yeah okay well thank you for listening to this episode thank you for sticking with us through two very fun seasons that we've all enjoyed doing and we've appreciated hearing from you all about especially some of our listeners are very active engaging and that's like really just a treasure for us to have friends and family who are listening and enjoying uh our podcast and learning along with us so it's been really fun to learn with you guys Mm -hmm. yeah i'm sienna my name's beth 
And I'm Alistair. And we out. See ya. <laughs>